the truism is you should never expect to make a profit, and that doesn't matter if you're at work or buying something, unless you add value to it. This is true across everything, and I, and I bring this up because it's such a good statement about everything. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Today we are going to talk to you about wealth coaching. Wait a minute, that's what we talk about every week, isn't it? Well, sort of. I the don't economics. Know we talk about wealth coaching, though. Economics, um, finance, some personal... On the program, we usually do pretty macro stuff, but uh, if you have questions about personal finance, we do that for sure. Uh, we've got to give some disclosures before we get started. We've said the name of the program is the Personal Wealth Coach, and not coincidentally, that is also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. The two people speaking on the air are the people that uh, give advice through that firm, but we can't give you advice on the air or in a podcast, or in any other broadcast format because of privacy issues and lots of other stuff. So what are we doing if we're not advising? We're educating. And just because the firm's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC somehow thinks that we are anointed or um, somehow given a seal of approval or any of that stuff. They don't do that. They are a regulatory authority, and we're required to tell you that in case we say something stupid. Nope, scratch that. We say that plenty of times. We'd be barraging the SEC uh, in case we say something fraudulent or misleading in a way that could cause people to lose money. Um, let's see. We don't pay for this radio program. More on that later. Uh, we do pay for advertising about the radio program. More on that later as well. Um, and you've got a disclosure. We're going through the disclosure at warp speed today. Well, the information we present to you in this educational radio program or internet program, as the case may be, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. We do, however, warranty and guarantee that all unsaid information on the radio program is incomplete. There we are. Unless your intention was to simply be silent. And that's not ever complete. So it is incomplete. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, on that subject, on the, the area of oil, this is, this is a fascinating subject at the moment because we're pumping out a lot of oil and natural gas in the United States, a lot more than we were two years ago, lots more than we were two years ago, but less than we were a year ago. And this during the summer, I was telling you about all the rigs that are coming online in the Gulf and all of that. Well, why are we pumping less? Well, because the price is coming down so fast. Why is the price coming down so fast? Well, I could give the easiest answer from economics and explain nothing by saying supply and demand. But let me explain the supply. Supply is mostly U.S. Nigeria is coming online with new refineries. So this is the first time in like 15 years that Nigeria is going to be exporting refined products from oil. 
They just opened up their plant. But Nigeria is not a very safe place. Venezuela just signed a deal in October to get back on the oil market and allow exports out to, to refineries and so on. And then they decided that they're going to annex half of their neighboring country. I don't think that that deal is going to remain on the table. Uh, just just side note, because the reason why they want to annex the country is to get at the oil in their neighbor. Not cool. Okay. So that's happening. Why is the price coming down if we've got, well, maybe Venezuela is going to be back out of the market again and Russia is not really in the market. And the big answer here is China. We're producing less oil than we were even six months ago. We're, our economy is booming. We are really trucking along. Why in the world, having those conditions met, is are, are we seeing the price of oil go down? And the answer, why in the world, is China. Um, China posted some figures back in June about their youth unemployment rate. Youth being, get, put some air quotes around that because that's young adults. Some educated, some not. The young adult population is usually the highest unemployment rate in any country. Um, but China was going a bit, way a bit, over the top and having 20 plus percent unemployed in that age range. This is from uh, 16 to 25. So this age range is typically factory worker bonanza range. This is the one where the factories want to grab them. So they had this number come up. We reported it. We talked about it. We said, this is horrible. They've got real problems that we're not seeing. And their answer to this was, We've decided to stop reporting the youth unemployment numbers, which caused the problem to go away, obviously. That is how you get rid of bad numbers. If you're having bad unemployment, all you have to do to get rid of it is just don't have unemployment numbers. It's really, it's, an, it's the easiest solution to any ec economic problem. Um, and uh, so as far as we're concerned, they don't have unemployment anymore in their youth population because they're not reporting it. That's not the only place where they're having issues. The, the, their, per, their producers, managers, uh, production management indexes, they've got a whole series of them, their uh, industrial output, their manufacturing, all of those are down. We've talked about the reasons for that in the past. Well, they weren't good suppliers. They went from being very reliable, though we had to twist their arm to get quality control. We sent our own people over to the factories to do quality control because they weren't good at quality control. They just were good at doing the work. Well, when we couldn't get the things that we needed to get from China during the pandemic and China doubled down on us being the problem and doubled down on using slave labor and doubled down on doing things that a lot of things that we as an entire culture find abhorrent, um, what the things they've done in Hong Kong, how they're treating the people in Tibet, those are new things. But when you combine it with they're not reliable as a manufacturing supply point, they will tell you we're going to send it to you and then not send it to you. They'll take the money and then wait um, and put that on top of their own real estate debacles going on and their massive debts on top of that. And China's not growing as a nation. Uh, they're claiming growth right now, but when their manufacturing is down at the way it's down, their growth is going to be 100% real estate at that point, which is about a third of their economy, which is not a good thing. Real estate should not be a third of anybody's economy. There's a couple of times in American history that that happened right before massive collapses. 
um, check out the collapse of 1837. Um, that's, that's worth looking at for those of you that think that we've never had a, our, our entire economy based largely on real estate. Yes, we have. And it didn't work out well for us. What did you want to add to that? Also in 1873. Right. Um, Which I think is interesting, 1837, 1873. So the collapses are a little dyslexic is what you're saying. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah, so both of those collapses had to do, I mean, we've had other collapses having to do with real estate, but they were smaller collapses because real estate represented a smaller portion of our economy. Uh, the, the global financial crisis, the Great Recession, was real estate-based. But even then, our economy was only 10% based in real estate. And the... Banking and the crisis, the uh, panic of 1907 was real estate speculation. Right. The uh, savings and loan crisis of the 80s. These are all real estate speculation bubble busts. And the big ones happened earlier in our history and got to be a smaller and smaller portion of our economy. And th there's reasons for that. As we expand, as we grow our industry, real estate is needed to expand. Uh, we develop it as people go from little houses to big houses because they're working in these new industrial facilities and they're making more money. They go and buy a bigger house, they're on a bigger land, and so people go, oh, the lands are going up and it's going to go up forever, and so they go out and buy more and more and more. Well, when real estate becomes a third of the economy, that's a bad thing for the economy because real estate doesn't really produce things. Yes, that is a big point. Real estate doesn't produce anything. You can build on real estate, but unless you're building something that does produce something, it's infrastructure spending. And if you're building infrastructure that's not it, the bridge to nowhere is a is a great you know anecdote. This is the, the the bridge to nowhere. Well, they have a lot of that in China. They did this for multiple major global collapses, recessions, and so on. They just pumped a bunch of money into infrastructure, built cities built bridges, built railroad stations. A lot of the railroad stations they built, people don't go to because the city is empty. Well, they have a lot of nowhere to build bridges to. Right. So if you're planning to go nowhere, we know where to send you. Right. There's bridges to it. Right. Um, and and you, roads and, and highways. Yeah. And, and so China's economy is requiring less oil. What does that mean? When we measure economies and we say oil... Uh, we're requiring less oil in the United States. We're using less. If you look at uh, the amount of miles we drive per gallon versus any time prior to this, you'll see, hey, we're a lot more efficient in our oil use. The per capita oil use in the United States is way, way down. We peaked in 2008 on our oil use, and we've been slowly coming down off of that. That's true across most of the industrialized societies. So I'm going to tie this together with another subject in just a second, because it's all the same subject. China's economy is not doing well, therefore the demand for oil is less than it was. We're pretty well supplying Europe, which was the reason for the big spike in the prices, is that the invasion in Europe caused them to say, we're not buying from Russia anymore. So the prices went up for everybody. And that was a big chunk of why we had the inflation that we did. Because when you have a big war that removes a bunch of the grain that was already being produced and a bunch of the oil that was already being produced, the prices for, for grains and oil go up. And most things are based in grains and oil. Uh, if you want to buy beef, well, they had grain somewhere in the mix. 
if you want to buy beef, well, they had oil somewhere in the mix. Those are two components, raw components to a lot of the things that we do across the economy. So we had a big spike in inflation and the Federal Reserve is working hard to bring inflation down. But one of the biggest measures that brings inflation down is when prices go up more in a given area, people tend to produce more of that thing so that they can get more of that increase in price. I know, it's like you're being incentivized to make more of the thing that people want to pay you more to do. Oh, isn't that amazing? Uh, So when we're looking today and seeing the price come down on oil, and we're seeing our own production in the United States come down as well, it's significantly down from what it was a year ago. Why? Because we're a lot more flexible about how we produce oil than we were even five years ago, massively more than five years ago. Um, uh, five years ago, we were in a weird place. We'd had the fracking boom. A lot of the wildcatters were out there and they were, they'd gone in and they made a bunch of money and then lost a bunch of money. And then we had the pandemic hit. Nobody wanted oil. They didn't want oil so much that you had to pay them money to take it. We had a week in the United States where we had so much oil on hand that we didn't have any place to put it. And we were paying people to take oil away. We had a negative price per barrel on West Texas Intermediate. And this is one of the things that is quickly being forgotten. People don't remember this because it was right in the middle of the recession of the pandemic and people registered it at the time, but they didn't experience it because they weren't driving at the time. So they didn't see the price of gas come way, way down. They didn't see the price of plastics come way, way down because they couldn't get the plastic that they wanted. Because nobody was making, which is why the price came down. So all that together, those wildcatters lost their shirts. And the big oil companies or bigger oil companies bought them over time. And they're a lot more flexible on the faucet. They, they turn that thing down as soon as the price starts coming down. They're not going to keep pumping if they're going to lose money doing it. Wildcatters have to do it because they got to make their interest payments. They're out there living right on the edge. And we need them to produce new areas. But when they become a large portion of the industry, that means that we, we're we going to have consolidation. That The big companies are going to buy them up because they're not running their companies like long companies. They're running their companies like, we don't know how long we're going to make it, so we're going to make as much as we can while we do. That is just using those two comparisons, the long-running company that's trying to be there long-term and wants to keep selling at a profit no matter what the price is, that's a definition of the entire U.S. economy. You flip to the wildcatter side, and that's the definition of the entire Chinese economy. There are exceptions on both sides. The Chinese economy is trying to make as much profit as they can right now, even if it means you're not going to buy from them next time around. You've got these great pants on Amazon straight from China or any of the other big Chinese places, but they fall apart in the washing machine on the first wash. Well, you're probably not going to buy from them again, but that doesn't affect their earnings this quarter. So when they do an IPO, they're going to come out with look at how well we've done. But if they don't maintain quality control, I mentioned that earlier in the episode, then things are not going to go well for them. So I'm tying unemployment at the youth level to... Chinese slowdown to oil prices, and now we have a big layoff in the United States by Stellantis. And I know this is one big, long subject, but they're all kind of connected, and I'm going to, what did you want to add to this? I just wanted to add something to what you're saying. If you're going to add something, I'll, I'll come in the tail end. Okay. 
So Stellantis. Oh, we're getting close to commercial time. Right. Stellantis, uh, which the United Auto Workers just did a big strike against all these major automakers across the United States. And they celebrated and said, look, we've got all these good contracts. Well, st- contracts. Well, Stellantis is laying off people across multiple states, about 4,000 people getting laid off from the internal combustion manufacturing arm of Stellantis. Stellantis makes Fiat and Dodge and Jeep and a bunch of other things that used to be wholly American. When Chrysler went away, the Italian Fiat company bought it. That's become Stellantis. Okay, why are the layoffs there? Well, the layoffs there because the demand at the Jeep level, this is weird because it's a little different from what the other companies are saying, for their electric vehicle and their hybrid vehicles went way up. But because of laws passed in California and about 14 other states that said they have limited emission standards and so on, they had to push all of their electric and hybrid vehicles off into those states, which left only internal combustion in the other states. And the demand for internal combustion in those states went down. So Stellantis is saying we've got to lay off the people in the internal combustion area. And if you think back or listen back to the radio or the podcast radio recordings that we did during the strike saying this is the United Auto Workers trying to protect the internal combustion workers because they're going to have to get retrained and all of that. This is what they were trying to prevent with the strike. But Stellantis is, is laying these folks off not because of their pay, but because of the, dem- the demand for that product is going away slowly. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons why it's not the ultimate solution now to do electric vehicle and hybrid, but we can see the efficiencies coming and the money is being spent in the right areas by the big manufacturers. So this is all tied together with a sea change, a massive shift in how we develop our energy and how we fuel our automobiles and our phones and our houses and our everything. Uh, and we're becoming more efficient, which means there's less demand. And this is a long-term trend. And you had some things you wanted to add to that strange and meandering subject that's all well, tied together. It's all kind of tied into China. Um, and there's some interesting, I've been looking at China very carefully. And among other things, I was approached by a grandmother this week, an elderly grandmother, uh, wanting to share a YouTube video with me that she thought was very important about the world and the economy. And so she did. And it was a propaganda video from China that looked like a documentary. So be careful here when you do this. I mean, if you know what you're looking at and you're familiar with all that's going on in the world, you would recognize, A, this was produced in China, and B, it was propaganda. And it showed their tremendous infrastructure and their high-speed trains and the big dams they built and the hydroelectric power. And it just looked like heaven was in China someplace. Yeah. Um, The problem is that... the Hydroelectric power projects are being hit with all kinds of problems with the quality of the concrete and problems with the way they set up the generators. Things are failing at a rapid rate that they said were going to last for a century. And this is the there's a key element here that I haven't seen a lot of information on. The United States has borrowed a lot of money as a country, and people are upset about it, but factually. It's kind of like Rome. Uh, as long as the dollar is the world reserve currency, it is, for instance, in order for China to buy raw materials from Africa, they pay in dollars, not yuan. Um, 
as long as we have the world reserve currency, and, and believe me when I tell you that there is nobody out there that's even close to being able to pr- produce a reserve currency that would even lightly compete with the dollar. Um, and we can talk about that at length if you'd like. But China's debt to GDP ratio is higher than ours. Now, I want you to think about that just a minute. China does not have a world reserve currency. They only have their own currency. And the problem with with the debt getting that high in a country where they only have their own, no one else, they don't even let, let the currency outside the country. And one of the reasons they don't let much of the currency outside of the country is it would probably be sold short and it would collapse. But here's the, here's the difficulty with this. In order to make the books balance and not have runaway inflation in China, somebody in China has to loan money to the government for the government to do all these things. And a lot of the things they have done are like the big projects in Russia. As a matter of fact, the, the people who are waxing eloquent about how China, China's economy and China's infrastructure is the vision of the future remind me tremendously of the things I read about the early Soviet Union and the things that when I was working in intelligence, we thought about the Soviet Union back in the 1970s when we thought they basically were a 20 foot high giant that was going to stomp us into the ground. Uh, and and the, a lot of people here are not old enough to remember that, but I remember it very well. Um, but China has got, a, not only do they have a tremendous debt, um, and, and that in, in their situation, their debt has been invested primarily in things that don't pay returns. As we've mentioned in the past, they built entire major cities that nobody lives in. They build, sure, they've got some amazing high-speed rail but they also have a problem, and they've recently even have run into a problem where they were trying to get enough coal into the into the Beijing area to keep things running, and there was a traffic jam that ran from uh, from Mongolia to Beijing of trucks where people were camping out on the side of the road because the highways couldn't handle the trucks. When you start digging in, and, and on top of that, they provide 30% of the air pollution in the world in China, and their economy is not 30% of the world. Their economy is 20-some percent. They provide 30% of the pollution from burning coal, which is not doing them any good. Here's the the problem with this. They're also spending a tremendous amount of money on their military, borrowed money. Well, you say, so are we. Yeah, but again, we are the world reserve currency, and I can, there's a really good argument why we really don't have a negative trade balance. Uh, We couldn't have a negative trade balance as long as we supposedly have had one, because it would bankrupt the country if we did. And in fact, we have the strongest economy in the world, despite the fact there's decades of negative trade balance, because we don't have a negative trade balance. We produce a product, and the product is called the dollar, and it is in great demand around the world. As a matter of fact, the dollar keeps rising against the euro because the dollar is a product. It is something that Chinese people, the Chinese uh, government and the Chinese industry uses to buy raw material from Africa. It's a product. But let's go back to China. Let, let's not. So you can you can go to China. I'm I'm going to okay, listen the about subject, it. Though. Let's go to the subject of China. Oh, okay, that's good. China is spending a lot of money on its military that it doesn't have. It is already approaching breaking point financially. Its economy, as Jake mentioned, is is slowing. Uh, it's it's not growing as fast at this point, but it has to grow at a high rate of speed to satisfy demand there, and it's basically a Ponzi scheme going on. If it ever slows down a little bit, it will collapse, and they're fully aware of that. This is where things get scary. If China's economy were to collapse, it would upset the world's apple cart horrifically. And and we could just go on for hours about that. We only got five minutes left in this hour. But uh, the other thing is, historically, there has only been one instance where the level of military buildup 
by a country or economic entity that we're seeing in China has ended without a major war. And that was with Soviet Union's buildup. And basically, Ronald Reagan started the process of we were building up faster than they were and convinced them that if they tried to attack, we would smash them into the dirt. And they went broke. Well, it was a, it was an intentional effort by the Reagan administration. And, the, all the, and by the way, the administrations that followed, too, uh, Democratic and, and Republican, continued in this basically make the Soviet Union try to keep up with us militarily and it will cause them to go broke and they will collapse. And they did. And it worked. The thing is, the Soviet Union was not a key player in the economy of the world. China is. China is in is a very dangerous place right now, not just because they might invade Taiwan and they may. And I think they 2027 Chairman Xi has said, we're going into Taiwan. He's warned his military, be prepared to go into Taiwan in 2027. If he doesn't, he will lose a lot of face and a lot of faith in his ability to lead. And that's not going to be a good thing. Um, the uh, the alternative is if he keeps pushing, their system will start to collapse. So the problem with history here is when a semi-dictatorship, an autocracy like he has, uh, borrows a lot of money and builds a huge military, as Germany did prior to World War II, as they did prior to World War One, as other countries have done over history. It almost inevitably results in them using that military or in one case collapsing economically. So there's something to worry about in China and it is really a serious thing. And I could go into that for hours too, but you probably get something else you want to say. I've yeah. talked about. Um, we've got an update on something that's interesting supply chain wise. Uh, and this is something that's coming out of Europe rather than out of the United States. Cause right now the United States time is taken up more and more and more with, politics. Uh, so even financial publications are running into this. The Suez Canal is having issues, not the canal itself, but getting to the Suez Canal. There are attacks in the shipping lanes. The United States is providing destroyers all through the area to help knock down drones, but Yemen and Iran are attacking ships as they go through. It used to be Somalia was doing it, and they're, they've got pretty well under control. Now it's Yemen, and they're not really going out to take the ships. They're more like launching things, but occasionally taking ships. The Iranians are also doing it. This is difficult. It's going to cause shipping costs to go up. The other major canal for shipping purposes is on another hemisphere. You have to jump over to the other side of the planet to Panama. And Panama is in a major drought, extremely major. It's severe. That's causing the cost to go through the canal to go way up. It's causing restrictions on the canal. So what's that mean? It means that shipping costs are going to go up. They're already going up, but they're going to be going up. What is the, what is the solution here? Well, Panama is going to need to figure out how they're going to supply water in drought situations there because it's been raining a lot less in Panama over the last several decades than over the last century. And so we just have to say if there's less rain in Panama over the last several decades, assuming that there's going to be more rain in the future is probably not the safest approach to managing the canal. So we got to figure out how do we provide enough water to keep the depth up in the canal while we're moving ships through it. Now, there's, it's, it's more complicated than that uh, on a lot of levels, but that's the general theme. How do we prevent uh, stoppage in Panama, and how do we prevent ship attacks 
near Suez. Those are important pieces in the supply chain puzzle and part of the reason why a lot of the major corporations are nearshoring or onshoring again. Because they're looking up and saying, hey, it's getting harder and harder to get things through Suez. It's getting harder and harder to get things through the Panama Canal. What do we need to do about it? Those are just pieces of a bigger puzzle. Uh, Drought and conflict threaten ocean trade through crucial shipping canals. This is not likely to stop soon. That area near Suez is surrounded by folks that are in the middle of civil wars. What does that generally do? Well, it creates chaos. Uh, The rainfall in Central America is lower than it has been. Is that El Nino? Is it climate change? it, It doesn't matter what it is. That's really what it comes down to. It doesn't matter. If you're in business, you need to make decisions based on reliability. That's what supply chain's all about. We've been talking about this a lot during the pandemic and after. Uh, reliability is important. So what do you do in Panama to increase reliability when there's a severe drought? What do you do in Suez to create reliability when there are folks attacking, attacking the shipping lines? We can do things about Suez a lot easier. We just send more ships out there to shoot the bad guys. It's really hard to shoot no rain. Uh, so how do we provide enough water properly to Panama to keep the the canal open? We can do it, but it sounds like Panama is going to need to increase the cost to get through the canal so that they can increase reliability. The problem is that the Panamanian government is not working extra hard to dredge or produce different sources of water to keep the canal open. So that's a problem for the future and one to be aware of. Global, the global trade situation is not going back to what it was in 2016. That was kind of the peak of free trade. It's not heading back in that direction for a while. The peak of free trade was around 2016. The canals were open. The Somalis were under control. We didn't have major invasions taking place across the planet. We had less taxes on trade by far. There, were not, there was not a global trade war between basically all the nations of the planet. That exists today. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that we're going to keep increasing our productivity here in the United States. Again, that's not a great reason to do it, but it also means that we need to do something to protect our trade routes. Because the fact is that one of the things that brought us through what should have been a recession in a lot of people's minds was our increase in trade in the petroleum area of the market. Um, Our increase in trade led to more money coming into the United States that allowed people to get raises at a time when people were expecting major layoffs. And that's uh, another little piece to the puzzle, I guess, to say, hey, this this is something happening in the world that most people aren't talking about. Now, I'm going to change the subject here because we've been talking the last several months about consumer confidence. You just brought up a piece about it in saying, hey, people feel bad about the economy. Consumer confidence numbers are starting to rise again, which doesn't necessarily bode well. Uh, It's a nice point, but um, consumer confidence jumped up in the last month from kind of a slowly dropping number to, hey, it's Christmas time. 
were buying stuff. And we said last month that we expected that to happen this month, that people are spending more. The act of spending more generally causes people to be more confident. It seems backwards. You would think that they would get confident and therefore spend more, but that's not how we actually work as people. Uh, Most people spend more and they realize it didn't hurt them. Oh, well, I'm more confident about spending more. Well, the long term of that is eventual higher debt and higher spending, but the short term of that is really good for the economy. Uh, Those are other little pieces out there. I don't know if you followed that about the U.S. consumer confidence jumping yep. up. Consumer confidence is a funny thing. We we talked about that, I think, last week or week before. The fact that uh, and it was in the newsletter. Consumer confidence, that people call are called up and ask what their confidence is in the economy, how much they think they're going to do in the future and whether their jobs are secure. And they are negative, 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 negative. And then you call them up again and you say, same people, how much do you intend to spend on each for each of your children for Christmas gifts this year. And, and you ask them detailed questions about what they're planning to do. And it turns out, even though they say they're cutting back on spending this year and their confidence is down, which by the way, is what's driving the Atlanta Fed now survey. Um, if you ask them specifically what they're going to spend per person, it's up and it's up dramatically. Um, so it'll be one of those things that, uh, what people do and what they say, that's why we don't pay a lot of attention to consumer confidence or political polls at this point. Um, this is way too early in the game to do that. All right. Yeah. And it's time to do commercials. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give investment advice customized to the individual on portfolio management and what to do in the event of buying and selling houses and businesses and all that good stuff. We also do the portfolio management site. You can reach us locally at 254-947-1111 or 800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can find us wherever podcasts are. On our website, you can uh, contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And thank you very much for listening. Until next hour, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach, and we appreciate you guys.